we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning to Kids Church. <clears throat> I'm going to do something uh, a little bit different this morning. Uh, if, if you've been following with us over the last several months, you know that we've been walking through the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, and if you're like me, sometimes you, you, you get into a narrative or you get into a story uh, and, and you kind of forget what's taken place in the chapters and the weeks and the months uh, that have gone past. In fact, you know, sometimes I forget what I had for breakfast. Uh, and you know, just just trying to just trying to, to keep it all together. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to recap and we're going to remind us of where we have been over the last several months as we as we have walked through the narrative of Second Samuel because a lot has happened. We see that David uh, comes into power. He consolidates the kingdom. God gives him a covenant. He demonstrates grace and then he falls from grace and then uh, all this all this mess happens after that and so so it's easy for us to 16 chapters into second samuel for us to get caught up in the minutia of the details and fail to see the overall narrative and so what we're going to do is we're going to back up we're going to take a few minutes and we're just going to recap second samuel so uh i have some slides up here hopefully uh, see, I'm not, uh, uh, I don't have all the fancy, uh, I, I don't know how to work these, these computers, so, so mine's just plain Jane. Uh, but we're going to begin uh, with 2 Samuel. And 2 Samuel begins with Saul and his sons are murdered. So we see, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Saul and his sons die in battle. Uh, and so Saul and Jonathan and his son is killed in battle. Uh, and then we see David becomes the king of Judah. Now there is a divided kingdom at this point because there are still those who are loyal to, uh, loyal to Saul and there's a puppet king who rises up. Uh, but we see that through uh, the providence of God, through his favor, that David becomes the king of both Judah, the southern kingdom, and uh, I'm sorry, the, the southern kingdom, Judah, and the, that should say northern tribes. And the northern tribes, and so we see Israel consolidated for the first time under David's reign. And then we see David extended the favor of God. David goes out to battle, and he destroys the Philistines and drives them out of the land of the land of Israel. And so, for the first time, for the first time, we see David as the covenant king. We see all of Israel united under David's reign, and they are no longer being uh, threatened or they're no longer at war with their enemies. After that, we see David move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. After there is no longer any threat from the enemies, David moves the, mark of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Remember, this is the story where David puts it on, an, uh, on a wagon and the wagon uh, gets, uh, it, it, it almost falls over and one of the priests goes to grab it and the priest drops dead. Uh, and then we, we are reminded that we must do things God, we must do God's will, God's way. And so David uh, follows the instructions of the Levitical law and he begins to, to move the Ark of the Covenant the way that God designs it. Uh, and then every, every, every so many steps they stop and they praise God and then David becomes even more undignified uh, than this. And so David moves the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Once the Ark of the Covenant is there in Jerusalem, God establishes 
the covenant with David. This is where we see 2 Samuel chapter 7. Whenever God says, I will be your God and you will be my son and I will allow someone or I will cause someone from the house of David to be on the throne of Israel all the days of your life, all the days that are to come, that there will always be a son of David on the throne of Israel. And so we see the Davidic covenant there in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then you see David experiencing the covenant, I'm sorry, David experiencing the favor of the covenant of God. He experiences God's blessings. He experiences the, 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 just the overwhelming grace and compassion and loving kindness and favor of God. And then we see David remembering his covenant that he made with Jonathan and extending grace and extending favor to Mephibosheth, who was the son of shame. Literally, his name literally means the son of shame. David extends grace and mercy and favor to Mephibosheth, who is the son of Saul, the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. And then we see David extending grace to the Ammonites. David sends condolences and sends uh, gifts to the uh, to the. Uh, the people of Ammon, the Ammonites, and then the Ammonites say, oh, well, this, this must be a trick, and they go out to battle against David, and David and the people of Israel utterly destroy the Ammonites. And so we see David showing grace to his enemies. And then on the heels of David being a covenant king who shows grace to the people of Israel and who shows grace to the enemies of Israel, we see David sin with Bathsheba. We see the adultery, we see the murder, we see the conspiracy to cover up the adultery, the murder. Uh, we see all that that ensues. And so we see the duality of man. We see David both as a covenant king, as God's honored, uh, as God's honored servant, as a man after God's own heart. And we also see David as a liar, a thief, a murderer, an adulterer. We see the duality of man there. Then we see Nathan confront David. We see Nathan confront David, and Nathan pronounces judgment upon David and upon all of the house of David. We see the son of David die the death that David should have died. Following that, we see David and Bathsheba have a second son, and his name is Solomon. Literally means blessed by God. And so uh, we also see, following David's sin with Bathsheba, we see Amnon, the son of David, act treacherously act egregiously and he rapes his sister his half-sister tamar absalom is incensed absalom is tamar's sis, uh, tamar's brother david's other son absalom avenges his brother's death two years after the event of amon and tamar of amon and tamar absalom avenges his sister's death kills amon and then exile runs for his life because he knows that that his life is in danger absalom is exiled after Absalom's exile, we see the Tekoan woman convince the king to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. The king brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. Absalom and David are uh, reconciled to one another, but we see that Absalom had ulterior motives. The only reason Absalom wanted to be reconciled to his father was so that he could, so that he could claim his his rightful place in his mind his legal heir to the throne and he could take the throne of the Israel, the throne of Israel from David and so we see Absalom return to Jerusalem and he through through politics he wins the hearts of the people of Israel Absalom takes the the practical reign from David David flees for his life because he knows the the unscrupulous character of Absalom and David runs 
for his life. Again, the king of Israel, God's covenant king, man after God's own heart, is running for his life. We see Absalom consolidating his power. And this is where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 16. So, everyone got all that, right? Everyone up to speed. So, this is where we are in the narrative. This is where we are in the narrative. <coughs> we are going to read 2 Samuel chapter 16. And I want you just to stay with me. This is a lengthy passage. But I believe that there is a, a huge biblical principle that I believe we can apply to our lives <coughs> in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Daniel, will you go grab me a bottle of water? Chapter 16, verse 1. Now when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys. And on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a jug of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why do you have these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and summer fruit are, the young, are for the young men to eat. And the wine is for whoever's faint in the wilderness to drink. And then the king said, Where's your master's son? Ziba said to the king. Behold, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O my lord the king. And when King David came to Behurim, behold, there came from there a man from the family of Shammai, from the son of Gera, and he came out cursing continually as he came out. He threw stones at David and all the servants of the king. And David and the people of all of his mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. And thus Shammai said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you men of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all of the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, and you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zerai, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with you, O son of Zariah? If he curses, and if he the Lord if he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all of the servants, Behold my son, who came out who came out from me to seek my life? How much more now this Benjaminite, let him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look upon my afflictions and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on, the, went on their way. And Shammai went along the hillside parallel with him. And he, he went on, as he went, cursed him and cast stones and threw dust at him. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary. And he refreshed himself there. And Absalom and all the people of Israel entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Now it came about when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, and long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? Then Hushai said to Absalom, No, from whom the Lord, from whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Besides, whom shall I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son, as I have served in your father's presence? So I will be in your presence. And Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your advice, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, 
Go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house. Then all of Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. And the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So, all was, it, so was all of the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. Let's pray. God, as we see this despicable act from Absalom, Lord, may we see your providence and your grace in the midst of your judgment. Now speak to our hearts through your gospel, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> What's well, my prayer that as we leave, that we will see the grace of God in the midst of the judgment of God. We understand that everything that takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 16 is a result of God's judgment. If we remember 2 Samuel chapter 12, whenever Nathan confronted David, he said the judgment of God will fall upon your house and will, the, the sword will never leave your house. And more specifically, what you have done in secret, I will do by exposing your sin, I will do in public for all of Israel to see. So we see that 2 Samuel chapter 16 is, is, is very much the judgment of God. But I want to point out to you that it is also the wickedness of men. The judgment of God does not mean, the judgment of God does not mean that Absalom is not responsible for his actions and Absalom is not uh, humanly responsible for his own choices. If we remember the story of Jesus, whenever Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever Jesus is at the Last Supper, the, the scripture tells us that, that Judas had already made up his mind what he was going to do and that he was going to betray Jesus and give him over to the hands of Caiaphas and give him over to the priest. And whenever he brought uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas shows up with the high priests and the Roman officials and the Roman cohort and, and he goes up and he kisses Jesus because he'd already received the money. Now, we understand that all of this was done according to the ordained and predetermined plan of God, but this does not give Judas an out. Judas was still responsible for his choices. And so I don't want us to see the judgment of God as an absolution for Absalom's actions, even though all that David is experiencing and will experience is the judgment of God, it does not absolve Absalom for his role in wickedness and evil and deceit and treachery and immorality. Just because God ordained it, it does not absolve Absalom from, from his responsibility. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? If it were not Absalom, God would have used someone else. God would have used a third party. God would have used uh, an inanimate object. God is, God is bigger than us. God does not need you and I to accomplish his purpose and his will. God chooses to use you and I to accomplish his purpose and his will. Jesus said, if the stones don't cry out, I'm sorry, if, 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 if these people don't praise me, I will make the very stones to cry out and praise me. And so I want us to understand that, that God's judgment does not absolve Absalom of his sin. Now, I want us to see very, very briefly, we're going to look at the first few verses and then we're going to move on very quickly. David is on his way out of town and Ziba shows up. We all remember who Ziba was. Ziba was Saul's servant who had 
taken all that was supposed to be Mephibosheth and he was living as, as a prince and Mephibosheth was living as a peasant in exile. Well, David, in extending his covenant grace to Mephibosheth, took everything that should have been Mephibosheth that Ziba was living under and gave it to Mephibosheth and made Ziba be Mephibosheth's servant, like he was supposed to be. Well, Ziba, an unscrupulous, manipulating man, seeks his own, and he shows up with David with all this stuff, and he lies through his teeth. He says, Mephibosheth is is in Israel, in Jerusalem. He is expecting to be anointed as the king because he's the heir of Saul's lineage. And so I have left to serve you, David, and I've I've brought all this stuff for you because, because after all, I am loyal to you and you alone am I loyal and and I want to take care of you. He lies through his teeth and David, in, in, in all that he is experiencing, says, Thank you for these provisions. Thank you for all you have blessed me with. Now you should own all that is that was Mephibosheth. And so we see this, this, this very brief interaction, and I'm telling you right now, this is not going to be the last we see from Ziba. But we see this very brief interaction, and the only thing that I want to point out to us in this passage is we need to be very careful not to find ourselves seeking our own to the detriment of our soul. Ziba manipulates, lies, cheats, and steals because after all, he wants what he wants. There's a warning that David, I'm sorry, there's a warning that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 16. He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So as we look at these very, very brief passage, before we get into the meat of the text, I just want to warn us as we see Ziba that we, not, that we are careful not to seek our own to the detriment of our soul, that we are careful not to allow greed and, and our own ambition to, to create within us a sinful desire that causes us damnation upon our own soul. All right, that's enough of that. Let's, let's move into the text. Now, very, very briefly, I'm going to unpack what happens here. David is leaving. He's leaving town. And, and as he's leaving town, Ziba comes to him and he tries, he, 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 he lies to him and he gives him Mephibosheth stuff. Well, on his way out of town, we see the, the, we see the conspiracy of, of Absalom and what he desires to do uh, to the household of David. And so we see Absalom ask his advisor, who was David's advisor, what do I do? How do I consolidate my power? How do I consolidate my power. And David, I'm sorry, uh, Ahithophel tells him, he says, well, if you want to consolidate your power, what is tradition is that upon a new king's reign, the new king would inherit the old king's harem. That That was customary in that culture. Now, most of the time, this was done symbolically. The new king would inherit the old king's uh, he would inherit the old king's harem. He would inherit the old king's property, the old king's servants. And they would come and they would serve him in a, in a professional manner because the new king would himself have his own harem. Now, I want to point out to you that this is, this is culturally unique. Okay? This is not the way 
This is, this is culturally unique in ancient Near East culture. This is not according to God's prescription of how godly men are to lead. Nevertheless, this is a descriptive text. And so what Ahithophel says is he says, look, not only do I think you should inherit the king's harem symbolically, but I think you should inherit the king's harem literally. Go to his house and have have sexual relations with all of the concubines that he has left to care for his household. And so Absalom, being the unscrupulous politician, the the red-blooded Israelite that he is, says, hey, that's not a bad idea. I mean, there's, there's ten beautiful women who are concubines who are left at the palace. And, and what better way to consolidate my power? What better way to, to, to demonstrate to all of Israel that I am the big dog, that I am the, the head cheese, that I am now the one who is in control, that I have assumed all that was once David, but to literally take all that was once his. And so... Absalom goes to the palace and his his people build a makeshift bedroom tent on top of the roof of the palace. And the scripture tells us that Absalom did not figuratively take the harem of the king, but literally takes the harem of the king. He goes into and lies with all of the king's concubines in broad daylight, just as Nathan had prophesied would take place. Now, this episode highlights the depravity and the debauchery and the sinful heart of Absalom. Drunk with greed and ambition, bitterness towards his father for not exercising judgment against Tamar, He longs to destroy his father, completely destroy David, completely humiliate David. He wants to burn any potential bridge that there may ever be for for true reconciliation. He wants to wipe David off of the face of the planet. He wants to utterly humiliate him, utterly destroy him. This is the heart of Absalom. I find it very ironic and very hypocritical that Absalom was so incensed and angered toward Amnon when Amnon lied with his sister, creating, uh, uh, I'm sorry, participating in incest with his sister. And here, Absalom, in an effort to completely humiliate his dad, goes and performs the same act of incest and immorality not just once but ten times it's the sin of David multiplied tenfold the irony and the hypocrisy here in this passage is palpable now as we are watching this take place As we are watching this take place, as this is taking place, I want us to see David's response. 
David's response. So as this is taking place, now the, the, the narrative flips it. The narrative puts, puts this act at the end of the passage and puts the cursing of David in the middle of the passage. And I believe that those events were taking place simultaneously. As David is experiencing the, the, the cursing of Shammai, that what is taking place is David is experiencing the the full judgment of God's wrath as Absalom is lying with his harem onto the roof as he is being cursed by Shammai. Now, I want us to see David's response. So, Shammai is cursing David. He is hurling insults at David. He is saying, you are a man of bloodshed. You're getting what you deserve. Everything that Absalom is doing is just what you deserve. Everything that all the hardships and pain and difficulty that you're experiencing in your life is just what you deserve. And I want us to look at what David says. Look at, look at chapter 12, verse 12. Perhaps the Lord will look upon my infliction, affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. <clears throat> I believe that 99% of the time whenever the New American Standard Bible interprets the Old, Old Testament and New Testament, it does it accurately. However, I believe in this text that it's wrong. There are several manuscripts that interpret verse 12 to say perhaps the Lord will look upon my afflictions and return good to me. There are also many manuscripts that read perhaps the Lord will look upon my iniquity and return good to me. And normally it would read better to say perhaps the Lord will look upon my affliction, my hardship, my difficulty, my tribulation and return good to me. But in light of the context, I believe that it should read, perhaps the Lord will look upon my iniquity. Why is David fleeing? Why is David receiving the affliction? Why is David being cursed? Why is David's son taking over his throne? Why has the sword not departed from David's household? Why is David being made a mockery? Because of his iniquity. And David is traveling through town and he's got his army with him. He's got his mighty men. He's got the warriors on his side. And, and his warriors are looking at him and said, man, let me go cut that guy's head off. He can't curse us if he doesn't have a tongue. Let me, let me, let me take care of this for you. This guy is getting on my nerves. And David said, no, let him curse. Maybe God will look upon my iniquity. And in the midst of all that I deserve, maybe, just maybe, he will demonstrate grace. Just maybe. I think it's interesting that verse 20 tells us that Absalom, this also reveals to us the heart of Absalom. That he asked, what do I do? He has to hit the fell. He says, what should I do? I want to contrast Absalom's heart with the heart of David. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 519. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, we see David coming to a point in his life where he needs direction. And what does he do? In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 19, Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, what shall I do? Here in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 20, Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give me your advice. What should I do? Do you see the contrast there? 
Absalom seeks the advice and seeks the counsel of men. David seeks the advice and the counsel of the Lord. Let's go back to David's response of 2 Samuel chapter 16. Because I believe that there is a very palpable reason, a very practical, tangible reason why David responds the way that he does. In the midst of all of the treachery, all of the hardship, all of the affliction that David is experiencing, David says, maybe, perhaps, God will look upon my iniquity, my sin, and do good to me. Why would David say that? Does David not deserve the judgment that he is experiencing? He absolutely does. Let me remind you what David did. He saw a beautiful woman. He, first of all, he wasn't where he was supposed to be. He saw a beautiful woman. He said, I want her. I don't care who I am. I don't care who she is. Go get her for me. He takes advantage of her. He manipulates her. He lies with her. He completely takes advantage of her. And then he says, get her out of my sight. She sends back words. She says, I'm pregnant. David said, well, nobody can find out my sin. He sends for Uriah. He says, we'll cover this whole thing up. Uriah does not sleep with his wife. He then says, well, since you won't sleep with your wife, we'll kill you. And he kills not only Uriah, but many other Israelites in an effort to cover up his sin. And he gets away with it. Does David deserve what he is receiving? Absolutely, 100%. David is a a liar, a thief, a murderer, an adulterer, and he's the covenant king. He is God's chosen covenant king. So why, how in the world can David in the midst of the judgment that he's receiving, in the midst of the cursing that he's receiving, say to his people, say to his warriors, say to those who are fleeing for their life too, maybe God will look at my sin and do good to me. That doesn't make any sense. Unless David knows God in an intimate way that is deeper than the judgment of Nathan. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Psalm 23. Interestingly enough, who wrote the book of Psalm 23? I'll give you a hint. His name starts with D and ends with Avid. <laughs> David writes Psalm 23. And I want you to listen to the language and see if you pick up on a subtlety that I believe is often missed. The Lord is my shepherd, he sh I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table before my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a subtlety in there that happens with the personal pronouns that you've probably read it a thousand times and never even picked up on. But the first three verses, the first three verses refer to God 
with a third person personal pronoun. He. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Third person. Verses 4, 5, and 6, something changes. The personal pronouns change. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your staff comforts me. You prepare a table set before my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Something happens between verse four, 3 and verse 4, and I believe what happens is that David comes to a personal relationship. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, God is not some third person that is distant, that he is looking at from a distance, that, that, that he is seeing a, a, and hearing stories about and seeing a perspective. All of a sudden, David experiences the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God in a personal way. It's no longer, he is my God, it's you are my God. It's no longer, you will protect me, it's, or he will protect me, it's you have protected me. It's no longer, he will deliver me, but you have delivered me. And I believe that the reason that David is able to respond by saying that God will look upon my sin and God will do good to me because David has a personal realization of the life transforming grace of God that says, you know, judgment is what is being pronounced to me and I deserve every bit of it, but I know the character of my God and I know that the character of my God, that judgment is his strange work and that he desires to pour out grace and mercy to me and though I don't deserve it, he loves me and he wants to pour out grace. Church, I want you to hear this. This is the crux of the gospel. And I want you to hear that David doesn't demand it from God. But he gives God the freedom to pour out grace. He says, maybe, perhaps, if God's willing, maybe, he'll do good to me in light of my iniquity. Maybe. Maybe I will die at the hands of Absalom. Maybe I will continue to suffer my afflictions that I rightly deserve. But maybe, just maybe, God will look upon my sin and do good to me. Church, that is the essence of the gospel. Every one of us are David. There are moments whenever we are the covenant king. Whenever we, we do what we're supposed to do, we're loving husbands, loving fathers, great, great employees. And then there are moments whenever we are rotten, dirty scoundrels. There are moments whenever we are supporting wives who love our husbands and, and raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then there are moments whenever we are, are vindictive, 
petty and wicked. And God is right when he judges us. And God is is righteous when he says, though all those who are who are sinful and wicked, I despise, and I will spew them out of my mouth. Just maybe, just maybe God would look upon my iniquity and do good to me. God wants to be, longs to be our gracious intervener. This morning. Maybe all you know of God is a third-person God. Maybe all you know is that, is that God who is distant, who is far off, that He will lead me beside still waters. He will lead me to green pastures. He will restore my soul. But you've never experienced it in a first-hand way. To know that you are, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they will provide comfort. They will provide peace. You will set a table before my enemies. And I'm here to tell you, church, that your enemies are great. Your enemies are great because your enemies are his enemies. And God desires, in the midst of your iniquity, in the midst of your affliction, to be good to you. And he did so through the shed blood of Jesus. Let's pray. God, may we respond to the consequences of our sin like David. May we look upon all that we have experienced and say, I deserve it. You are right when you judge You're right when you condemn because I am wicked. But maybe, just maybe, you'll do good to me in light of my iniquity. I'm here to tell you this morning, church, that he has done good in light of your iniquity. And he has done good in light of your sin. He has looked upon your iniquity. He has looked upon your sin. He has looked upon your your transgression. said though your sin be as scarlet I will make it as white as snow he's looked upon your sin and he said I love you so much that I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to place it on the cross I'm going to place it on my own son Jesus and I'm going to pour out my wrath and judgment that was due you that you might have the righteousness of God This morning, if you desire to know the goodness of God, not in a third-person way, but in a a personal, first-hand experience, if you want to be able to say with David that you are my Savior, you are the one, you are my good shepherd, you are the rod and my staff that comforts me, that I know this in a first-hand way, you to come during the time of invitation. Maybe this morning God has revealed to you that you need to be a part of what he's doing right here at Redeemer. Maybe God is calling you to be obedient by following him in baptism. Whatever the Lord is speaking to your heart during this time of invitation, may you find yourself obedient.
God, may you meet us where we are. God, may you refuse to leave us where we are. Or may you touch our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We stand in